All right. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, I am here today with Kenneth Valpe. Valpe, I'm sorry, uh, Doctor Kenneth Valpe. Um, Kenneth is a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. He's also um, a very active and published author. His most recent book, Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. And it's my understanding that Kenneth is also currently working on a book uh, on animal ethics. Uh, today, I'm going to speak with Kenneth um, about Hinduism in general. We're going to talk about some of the big questions, big questions of life, and get Kenneth's perspective um, and maybe dig into a little bit of what Hinduism is. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining me, Kenneth. It's really my, appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's, it's easy to do these days online. <laughs> yeah. So to start off with, um, we'll just jump straight into it. Um, in your own understanding, uh, what is Hinduism? Well, I'd like to first um, consider that term a little bit, uh, because anything with an ism on the end uh, makes me a little nervous. Uh, it might be easier to talk about Hindu traditions in the plural. Um, the, the term Hinduism doesn't really come into use until the 19th century, um, sort of an import by the British, uh, who, of course, had their empire, well, outside of London, Calcutta was the second center of their uh, empire for uh, quite some time. So they kind of invented the term Hinduism. Uh, but Hindu traditions, I think we can safely talk about, even though the word Hindu, we also don't find in the literature which Hindus follow, the, the scriptures which Hindus follow. Uh, the term is basically coming from outside India, referring to those people who live in India. They were called Hindus. Uh, what is Hinduism? What are Hindu traditions? Uh, sometimes it's said, whatever you say about Hindu traditions, the opposite is also true. <laughs> but I think a, uh, a possibly easy place to start would be with uh, a major scripture one which is widely known, and that is the Bhagavad Gita. And it may be of interest, I learned this uh, several years ago, that there are three uh, scriptures of the world which have been translated more times from their original languages into English than any others. First, there's the Bible. Uh, there's the Tao Te Ching, uh, the Chinese Taoist work. And third, um, there's the Bhagavad Gita. And I know there are at least 250, probably by now 300, uh, different English translations of the Bhagavad Gita. That's, of course, <clears throat> not, not including so many other languages. Uh, so the Bhagavad Gita... Mm, is it's a philosophical text and it's also a theological text. Um, it's an interesting text because it's a conversation. It's a it's a dialogue. It's a, a dialogue which is taking place in a, a where you wouldn't expect a dialogue to, like this to happen, namely on a battlefield. Uh, prior, just prior to the beginning of the great battle of Kurukshetra, which is described in uh, the epic called the Mahabharata. 
excuse me for bringing up technical terms and names, but sometimes hard to avoid. Mahabharata is uh, a huge, huge book. Uh, It's said to be eight times the size of the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. Uh, And within that is this small, small section of 700 uh, strophes or or verses in Sanskrit language, uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And it's uh, very much dealing with fundamental questions. Uh, Who are we? What is the purpose of life? It's, um, It's dealing with who is God. It's dealing with what is this world? <clears throat> so cosmology, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, what is time? Uh, and um, especially it's dealing with a term karma. Karma is something, it's become something of a household word uh, in the West now in recent decades. Um we kind of, we hear it uh, being bounced around. The word karma literally means action or work. Um, and it can also mean make, to make. And uh, what's interesting about it is that it's a, addressing uh, what we may call the problem of human existence. <laughs> Uh, the problem of human existence being that mm, we are faced with the reality that we must die and we don't want that to happen. Um, And in the face of death, we are living our lives um, largely ignoring this reality (laughs) And this this fact, um, but it's it's always there to haunt us in various ways. Now, what does that have to do with karma? Well, karma means action, and we understand there is a kind of invisible, what's sometimes called a, a law, a sort of cosmic law, um, which is wherever there's action there will be reaction. Um, so it's kind of, what is it, Newton's second law of motion or something? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but this is working on a, on a moral dimension. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we may say, okay, so I'm going to work. I'm going to act. I'm going to work in such a way. I'm just going to always be good. Um, well, that's nice. Uh, we should certainly do our best to be good, and we may have guidelines for that, such as the Bhagavad Gita and much other literature, and so many scriptures of the world are giving us guidelines for good action, Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and so on. Um, But the problem is that even good action is what is called binding. It binds us. Um, What does that mean? Well, what we understand, what Krishna is explaining uh, to his friend Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, in this conversation, this dialogue, is that being bound to this world means that after this life, we will be forced into another body, and that body may not be one that we're so happy with. So action, good action, bad action, um, we, we can do our best, but it's, it's sort of like quicksand, you know? You, you, you try to pull one foot out and you, it just pulls the other foot deeper in. Mm-hmm. 
So, and Krishna explains uh, in quite some detail in the Bhagavad Gita that you may say, okay, so, so then I won't do anything. I'm going to stop acting altogether. Uh, I'm just going to sit in one place and meditate. Krishna says that's not going to work either. Mm. Because that your so-called non-action is just another form of action. So he says, everyone has to act. Uh, we cannot avoid it. Um, so then, what to do? Because one of the aims, one of the very broad aims of Hinduism, we can say, is to attain what uh, in Sanskrit is called moksha, or liberation. And excuse me, what that generally means is liberation from this repetition of death and rebirth and again death and again rebirth. And someone may say, well, that sounds really dark. Um, I mean, life's not all that bad. I'm, I'm actually enjoying life most of the time. Um, yes, it may seem like that. <laughs> And certain, certainly joy is there, happiness is there. And why is that happiness there? Why is that joy there? Because that is our essential nature. Um, and when I say our, uh, when I say we, I'm referring to not just human beings, but all living beings. Again, from Bhagavad Gita, we understand that we... Uh, all living beings have essentially three characteristics. One is that we are without beginning and without end. So we are eternal. Second, we are full of knowledge, which is very different from what we experience. We, um, we come into this world completely ignorant and the third thing is we're full of uh, joy or bliss. And, and these three uh, characteristics, we, we see practically we're always looking for these. We're always striving for these. Um, and so then the question becomes how to find, find this reality of ourselves. And for that, uh, Hindu traditions offer different what we may call currents uh, of practice. Mm, the technical term is marga. Marga means path. So there are pathways to practice. And the one which is most widely heard of uh, nowadays is yoga. Now, of course, yoga generally people think of as kind of physical exercise, uh, yoga yeah. studios and so on. Um, that's actually just one fraction of the full practice of yoga, which is uh, about learning to control the mind and focus the mind. Um, because one thing uh, that Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita is uh, that Whatever and wherever our mind is focused at the time of our death, that will determine our next life. Mm. <laughs> and so the idea is that this human life in particular is an opportunity uh, to prepare, to practice, uh, to... Uh, prepare ourselves not just for the, the end of this life, but to end all of these temporary lives and to enter into eternal life uh, full of knowledge, full of bliss. Uh, I'm sort of rambling on, so maybe I should no. stop and yeah. see what you want to know more about or less about. <laughs> uh, I've that was uh, 
fantastic. Yeah. Um, I was trying to take notes because you brought up a lot of points that I really want to ask you about. Sure. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to decide where to start. Um, I definitely want to come back to the Gita. So don't let me forget that. Okay. Um, oftentimes when I'm tasked with teaching a very broad class, like world history one, yeah. um, I, ha I have to teach the Gita and I get like, 45 minutes to do it. So, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had I, that I experience have... myself. <laughs> yeah. So you know how frustrating slash uh, impossible that is. But yeah. um, I, I want to come back to a question that you mentioned, and this will probably tie into some of the aspects that you already talked about. Um, I'll ask it very broadly and feel free to take this however you want to, but um, mm -hmm. who are we? Ah, yes. Well, uh, as I was saying, we are um, eternal beings. Uh, we are sentient and we are persons. Uh, and that is something that's irreducible. We are, um, and, and person means we are always in relation to other persons. And it means uh, that we are in relation to a supreme person. So again, a couple of technical terms, uh, but from Bhagavad Gita, we get the term Atma, uh, which can mean just self. Self uh, referring to that which exists beyond the body. And then Paramatma, or the higher self, uh, mm. which is said to accompany the individual self. And the, the Bhagavad Gita sometimes uses analogies, simple analogies to help us grasp what's otherwise quite abstract. So for this, uh, one analogy it uses is um, the changing bodies analogy, that mm -hmm. we, can, we can sit down and look at photos of ourselves when we were kids, and we turn the page. Well, nowadays we click the computer, but it, you know, later and later and later pictures of ourselves with our family and our friends. And we may be looking with a friend and we say, yeah, that's me when I was five years old. Mm. And the friend, if the friend wanted to be devil's advocate, could, could say, no, no, that's not you. That somebody else, um, biology tells us that the body, the cells of the body have changed every seven years completely and so on. And you can say, that may well be, but that's me. It's not somebody else. Or um, the legal system. Say I commit some crime, I steal something, God forbid, uh, from a shop, and I'm caught and I'm brought in the court, and uh, they wit you know witness against me, and I say no, 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 no that. That wasn't me. That was somebody, you know, last week. But I'm different now. Which is one of the arguments uh, that uh, the, you can say, the Hindu tradition in general has against Buddhist traditions in general, uh, mm -hmm. where the, the, the challenge is, the Buddhist challenge is that Actually, there is no self. Your problem is that you are thinking that you are self. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been volumes and volumes written on this uh, over centuries. But just sort of in simple terms of uh, our own experience, we can understand there's some, something continuous um, which uh, indicates that there is a, 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 an existing self. And what Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is that just as we have this experience 
of the change in the course of uh, the days, week, weeks, months, and years of this life. Similarly, there's going to be a change at the time of death. And then he, he says that uh, a person who is enlightened, who is prepared, will not be disturbed at, at the time of death because he or she knows, I'm just passing, I'm just moving on just like someone we would walk from one one room into another. Now, another point, what is, uh, who are we? Um, and this is something which <laughs> I personally found very, very liberating, um, especially as a young person when I first heard this, uh, especially in American culture, I think. I grew up in California and um, the whole media culture, everything is sort of driving us with this idea that you must enjoy. You are an enjoyer. You must enjoy. You must, you know, make your life worthwhile uh, by, by enjoying. Well, um, Krishna says, don't waste your time. You're not an enjoyer. I am the enjoyer. God is the enjoyer. And our business is to provide pleasure to God. And so our position is that we are servants. And that never changes. And uh, this points to... Um, this explains a lot of, <laughs> you could say, world history. You're talking about teaching world history. World history is about, if you want to sum it up in one sentence, it's about human beings all trying to be master. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's trying to be a master of someone or something or some territory. Um, when it's never going to work. So the idea uh, of in the Hindu traditions generally is is to recognize this point that we are we're actually uh, we're actually in a position to serve, and when we find uh, the right person to serve, namely the supreme person. Uh, then, um, then we can actually be happy in that reciprocation of personhood, um, ourselves as persons with the Supreme Person, who is the perfect reciprocator, <laughs> if you like. So, kind of uh, building off of this, um, mm -hmm. when I was looking for my copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Oh. Um, so oftentimes when I teach this, it's usually, um, and I, I would be more than happy to get your recommendation on a translation. <laughs> um, this is probably the best one that I've found thus far. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's fairly cheap. Um, uh -huh. So accessible to students. Yeah. Um, there's a. I, I think it's in the first. It's, it's got to be in the first couple of chapters. You you spoke about. Um, there's this really famous scene where, um, is it Arjun or Arjuna? I've heard it pronounced. Well, it depends if you want to be more like Sanskrit pronunciation, which would be Arjuna. Or you want to be more like modern Hindi, which would be Arjun. Arjun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been saying Arjun for a long time. Yeah, so that's I'll, fine. I say that. Yeah. So there, there's this famous scene that you mentioned um, where Arjun is is presented with the opposing forces, and he's kind of, uh, I, I guess. My interpretation has always been kind of overwhelmed with the uh, uh, the enormity of the task, 
the kind of impossibility of the task. There's also the scene where he looks out and he says he sees his family. He sees kind of the, the lineage. Uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, grandfathers, fathers, grandsons, mm-hmm. great grandsons. And he just sits down, right? He's unable to. And then in the next chapter, we get Krishna's urging to call to action, right? basically. And so this brings up this concept of uh, Dharma. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you can speak a little bit to that, because this is yeah. usually a big question that I have from students. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with uh, this word, Dharma, uh, which is a Sanskrit word. And um, it's one of those words that everyone wrestles with because it gets translated in dozens of different ways. A simple way it's translated often is duty. But I think what uh, is a source of one problem of translation is uh, that Dharma deals, in a sense, on two two levels. One is descriptive and one is prescriptive. And what I was saying a minute ago about um, we as living beings being servant, that would be a description of our uh, fundamental nature. So that's descriptive side of Dharma. And based on that understanding, then comes the question, what should I do? And the word should, of course, indicates obligation. And um, in some of the more ancient texts, and this goes back before the Bhagavad Gita to the Upanishads, uh, these are also dialogues, uh, there is a notion of of debt that we are born with. Uh, we are born into debt. Uh, and some texts refer to three kinds of debt, and some texts refer to five kinds of debt. But before going into what those are, just to say that it's understood... Um, these have to be paid off, and that is dharma. But uh, to get back to this word dharma and its sort of etymology, we can say, it has to do with holding and upholding and sustaining. So to practice dharma is to participate, we can say, in sustaining um, sustaining the world, sustaining the cosmos, sustaining our own lives, individual and collective, our family, and so on. Um, and then it, then it comes down to more details. Okay, what is your dharma? What should you be doing? And you mentioned with Arjuna... Arjuna, I'm, I'm accustomed to say Arjuna. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and Krishna is telling him, after Arjuna says, I'm not going to fight, which is a huge shock uh, if, in the context of the whole Mahabharata, because Arjuna is the paradigmatic warrior, hero, mm. uh, who is always successful in battle. Mm. And he's saying, (laughs) I'm not going to fight. What? (laughs) And so Krishna says, no, come on. You have to fight. You're a kshatriya. Kshatriya is the uh, Sanskrit word for warrior. And that's your duty. Uh, Your duty is to fight. Um, And if you do your duty, then... We can, you know, if we get into Western ethics, we can say this is the de- deontological sort of uh, ethics. This is your duty. 
don't think about the consequences. You just do your duty, and uh, this will be the best thing that you can do. So um, I used the word kshatriya, and that points to another term, uh, which typically makes us nervous in the West. Um, we hear the word caste, which I think came from a Portuguese word. Uh, when the Portuguese went to India, they kind of looked around and said, oh, what is this? There are different categories of people, and they called them caste. Um, the Sanskrit word is, there are two words. Uh, one is varna, mm. which literally means color, um, but it comes to mean uh, essentially occupational propensity. Um, and that's another subject that volumes and volumes have been written about, but in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna refers to it. He says, uh, this is a system which is based on um, what's called guna, or qualities, and karma, our action, what we actually do. And so often dharma is uh, portrayed in terms of... Um, of this subject, of who are you in terms of your, your varna. But in modern India, we don't actually hear so much about varna, and this is where the plot thickens. There's another term which is mentioned once in the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, and then it's not elaborated, but it's, it's jati. And jati is, um, well, you could say it's the more specific side of, of varna. So someone may be a kshatriya, broadly speaking, and more specifically, maybe their, um, their family tradition is specialized in, let's say, a particular type of fighting. Um, Maybe they are horse soldiers, something like that. Um, anthropologists estimate that there are now some 3,000 jatis in India at present, and probably most of them don't actually follow their particular occupations of their original jatis. Everyone is doing something else. So, but still, these are, um, these can be very significant uh, for people. And therefore, people will, um, they will ask, what is your family name? And you say your name, and from that, they'll immediately know what is your jati. And what does this come to, um, how does it play out in daily life, in, especially in India, especially in village India, less and less in uh, metro, metropole? Uh, it, it plays out in two areas. One is the question of who do you marry? And the other question is, who will you dine with? And unfortunately, um, whatever good intentions they may have had, the British colonialists in the 19th century, um, when they encountered uh, the so-called caste system, they took it very seriously and they wanted to catalog all the castes. And they did this in a very artificial way, trying to make a sort of single uh, scale, top to bottom. 
And what happened was the Indians took the British seriously and tried to position themselves always higher on the British scale. <laughs> and it's been trouble ever since. Um, so in the Bhagavad Gita, going back to uh, Krishna and Arjuna, uh, they're not concerned with that. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, the whole point of this is simply to facilitate um, the sort of smooth running of society so that we can concentrate on what really matters, uh, which is self-realization and God-realization. And uh, there's a verse in the fifth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita uh, that says... Um, Vidya vinaya sampanne brahmane gavihastini shunichaiva shvapakecha pandita samadarshina. Samadarshina, pandit. Pandit means a learned person, and samadarshin means one who sees equally. He sees all beings, and it mentions a cow, an elephant, a dog a Brahmin, which is the priestly uh, caste, so to speak, um, or someone who is, you know, a street sweeper, if you like. Uh, the pundit sees everyone equally. And that is, that's the aim I mentioned yoga. That's the, uh, that's one of the deeper purposes of yoga is to develop that that vision and to act on that on that vision well i'm uh, rambling again <laughs> no no that was that was great um so we you outline i think very nicely um who we are um this idea of dharma um, I was wondering if you could speak for a little bit on the nature of the divine, um, maybe phrase it this way and feel free to change the phrase of the question. Mm. Um, who or what is God? Ah, okay. Yeah, good question. Um, again, a subject of Bhagavad Gita and Krishna uses um, various terms. One of them is Ishvara, uh, which means controller. And another term used is Bhagavan, uh, which kind of literally means one who possesses opulences. Um, so Bhagavan, uh, one definition uh, by one of the early theologians of the tradition is that um, Bhagavan is he who possesses all, who possesses unlimited qualities and opulences uh, to an unlimited degree. Um, okay. <laughs> And again, as I mentioned before, the understanding is God is a person, uh, which means, you know, we can take uh, the, the standard uh, understandings that we get from, from Western theology, uh, omniscience, omnipotence, uh, uh, what is it, um, omni-something. Omnipresence. Omnipresence, yeah. yes, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, those are certainly all included, and there's something more, uh, and that something more comes back to the point of relationality, which I said is integral to being a person, that um, every being has a relation with God, which we want to develop and that relation has is 
analogous uh, to relations we have in this world. We have friends, so a possible relationship with God is one of friendship, in which uh, the sense is not that, oh, this is God, I must bow down, but it's more like a sense of equality. And one example of this is Krishna and Arjuna. They are, they are friends. Um, another relationship that's possible, which is explored extensively uh, in a much larger work called the Bhagavata Purana, uh, which I've worked on, you may have seen on my website, um, We've published, myself and my colleague have published a couple of books. Um, one is a reader on the Bhagavata. So uh, one possible relationship is uh, parent and child, where one feels oneself to be the parent and God to be the child, rather than okay. the other way around. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> and what this is highlighting is the sense that uh, God allows himself to become dependent on his devotee. And another relationship which is possible and which is also described extensively in the Bhagavata Purana is the conjugal relationship, uh, the relationship between a lover and beloved. And um, this is not unique to this tradition. We find it uh, expressed in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Song of Songs. And I believe there are also expressions of it in other traditions, mystical uh, traditions yeah. usually. But here the point is that it's, uh, it's the emphasis is on relationship. Now, some, some um, people will say, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You're, you're misrepresenting Hinduism. Hinduism is actually about realizing the supreme, absolute, impersonal, or non-personal Brahman, as it's called, the absolute. Uh, and this is a kind of perpetual um, point of contention in Indian uh, philosophical and theological traditions. Uh, we have what's what's known most widely in the West. Um, there is the ph philosophical tradition of Vedanta, and then what's known in the West is usually a kind of Neo-Vedanta, uh, which takes um, this non-dualist uh, understanding that the ultimate, they will say, and this is something that my tradition would vehemently disagree with, but they will say that, no, no, you must go beyond uh, that idea of relationality uh, to the ultimate oneness um, in which personality is, is no longer there. Um, but the, the vast majority of practicing Hindus uh, in India are not really subscribing to that. They're subscribing to a personalist understanding. So yeah, God is a person. And one of the, inter one of the interesting um, features of this, uh, I spoke of Bhagavan, I spoke of opulence, and one of the... Um, one of the, we say, opulences of God uh, is that, well, he is 
full of wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. Renunciation meaning he is perfectly detached from all that he is, all that he possesses. Um, who or what is God, um, we can also talk about in terms of excuse me, in terms of names. Uh, we understand that God has unlimited names which describe his qualities. Um, and I keep saying his, but um, there is also very strong representation in India of tradition that God is ultimately feminine. Um, and uh, so they will focus on, on the feminine understanding of, of, the, of the Supreme. Um, names are understood to be uh, of special power and in particular for for us in this world in this age what i mean by this age is um again from the work in which we find the bhagavad gita and the mahabharata there's a notion of yugas these are long ages and we find ourselves according to that calculation um in the beginning of a very long age of degradation. Uh, it's getting worse, it's not getting better, and our capacities uh, are getting weaker, and our lives are not getting longer, they're getting shorter, and so on. So uh, our capacity for self-realization and God-realization becomes very limited and so what to do the recommendation uh, is to call out to repeat to chant uh, mantra uh, which consists of names of god because these names are um, are forms of god by which we can make a direct connection. The word yoga literally means connection. And uh, through, through sound vibration, we can connect with God. So there are many names. Um, the ones in my tradition most favored are Krishna and Rama, uh, also Hari and Govinda, but any number of names which describe his qualities and also what are called his pastimes. Another uh, sort of telltale feature, broadly speaking, of Hindu traditions, particularly those following the uh, Vaishnava uh, stream, Vaishnava meaning those who identify identify God as with the name Vishnu. Uh, Vishnu is um, a very prominent understanding of, of the person of God, is that um, because God is all-powerful and because God is concerned for his creation, he takes the trouble uh, to appear in this world uh, in different times and different places and in different forms. Uh, the general term here, again, a Sanskrit term, is avatar. And I know that yeah. term has been taken over by uh, the computer games industry. Uh, but it originally means one who crosses down, one who descends. And the understanding is that um, God will appear in order to give um, information about how to approach him. 
and so he comes at different times and uh, reveals in different ways um, how how to approach him and to reestablish uh, processes for humans to progress in their purpose in life, what we call dharma in the sense of what we should do, <laughs> prescriptive dharma. So you take a more, and I'm going to have to apply some Western concepts here, so sure. forgive me. <laughs> uh, because uh, I will say that it's um, it's very difficult to to get my hands on um, like solid, and I would be more than happy to hear your recommendations later. Uh, solid trans uh, information about Hinduism that's been translated into English. So mm -hmm. oftentimes, I think what we get might be a little skewed. Um, one of the big questions that I get asked from students that. I'll ask you and then figure out if I've been answering it wrong this whole time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you, you have this on a, on a surface level, people that aren't familiar to Hinduism come to Hinduism and they see all of these different gods and goddesses. Mm -hmm. And one of the approaches that you mentioned is the idea that yes, you have all of these different gods and goddesses, but all of these different gods and goddesses are, manifestations or representations of a single divine entity slash being slash substance, however you want to phrase that. Um, but wait, what you were saying just now was that uh, the divine, you talked a lot about relationality, about entering into a relationship with the divine in the same way that a parent to child relationship or lover to beloved relationship um, so can you speak a little bit more about that sort of difference there, uh, maybe where you fall on that sort of spectrum? Hmm. Yeah, um, often the accusation is that, oh, this is polytheism, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's interesting because going back to the very early uh, sacred texts, the Veda, uh, the Rig Veda, which is, yeah, scholars will say it's from latest 1000 before the Common Era, more likely 1200 or 1500, it's, you know, every, anybody's guess. Uh, the tradition says these texts are eternal, uh, they simply manifest in time. Um, there are hymns to any number of different gods. And then you come to the Upanishads, in which there's a very interesting conversation in which uh, one student is asking a teacher, how many gods are there? And he says, there are, what's the number he gives? I think he says, there are 3,306, uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, actually, no. Uh, and he, he gives half the number, um, or one-tenth, I don't remember. And he says, actually, no, and he keeps cutting it down. And then finally says, actually, there's only one God in the end. Okay, but then if there's only one God, what is this with all the different hymns to different gods? Yes, they would be understood to be different manifestations of the one God performing different functions and reciprocating with different worshipers according to their desires. Mm. So, and, you know, the word desire, this is, this is, this gets right down to the core of things. We find ourselves in this world as bundles of desire, 
and what do we do with this? So, um, one aspect of the, broadly speaking, Hindu tradition is saying, we'll accommodate them, but we'll accommodate them in ways which, sort of despite yourself, are going to elevate you. All you have to do is follow the rules of how to, you know, worship this particular uh, divinity, do this particular um, austerity, this particular fasting, um, go on this particular pilgrimage, and so on. And you're going to hope that by doing all this, you're going to, you know, you're going to pass your, your final exam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're going to help you with that, but we're going to get you further than that. We're going to get you eventually to a point where you're going to be asking yourself, why am I doing all this? And why am I pursuing this, uh, you know, what, what I think is, is going to bring me happiness when what I realize is it's not bringing me happiness. And that could take lifetimes to realize. Uh, it could take lifetimes or, and this is where, um, again, broadly speaking, Hindu traditions would say, save yourself time and find yourself a proper qualified teacher of spiritual knowledge. Uh, the Sanskrit word guru is there, which has also been um, taken on in the West. You have uh, computer gurus and whatever. Yeah. But originally, guru had the sense of someone who is um, charged with knowledge, with spiritual knowledge. How am I going to finally, how am I going to get a final solution to my problem? <laughs> so, um, so what, it, so God, one or many, well, ultimately one. And uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna even says, out of ignorance, people worship different gods. And I give them the faith to do that. He doesn't say, I am a jealous God. <laughs> he says, you want to worship this God, go right ahead. Not only that, I'll give you the faith to do it. <laughs> so it's a more, um, and in religious studies, you kind of have this distinction between exclusive and inclusive religious traditions. Right. So in, in that respect, uh, would it be fair to classify it as more uh, inclusive, right? Respectful of different uh, beliefs slash traditions, Yes, broadly speaking, I would say the emphasis is on inclusivism, um, although one does find a fairly exclusivist kind of statements as well. Um, but then you have to see sort of who who is being addressed, um, you know, uh, for for which audience uh, is a particular statement being given. Um, but yes, main, in the main, I would say there's an inclusiveness. Um, in one phrase in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Mama Vart Manavartante Manusha Partasarvasha. He says, Everyone follows my path in all respects. It's already, it's already going on. Everyone's, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. he doesn't word, use the word Hindu. He doesn't say everyone is Hindu. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's, he's saying that, uh, you know, there's already uh, a process going on. Everyone is on that path. Some are 
moving kind of slowly. Some may be kind of spinning in their tracks. But, you know, it's, it's uh, everybody's there. To, um, to kind of wrap things up here, mm-hmm. if, if you have somebody that's, um, that listens to this or, if, you know, uh, somebody stumbles across this on YouTube or if, God forbid, somebody takes one of my classes and they're <laughs> interested in furthering their knowledge of what was talked about here, mm-hmm. um, what, w- what would you recommend to, a, to somebody starting on that beginner level? Yeah, there are a lot of books that are kind of introduction to Hinduism. Uh, but, you know, we kind of started out with Bhagavad Gita. And you mentioned or you showed one translation. Uh, here I'm going to sound, for some I'm going to sound a little sectarian, but I would recommend my own guru's <laughs> Bhagavad Gita, which is, uh, has a title, Bhagavad Gita As It Is. Um, uh, which is, there's a message in the title. The The point that he's making with that is that um, what's being missed in so many translations is the sort of core spirit of, of the Gita, which is accepting Krishna's position as he speaks to Arjuna. His position as as Bhagavan, as Paramishvara, as Yogishvara, as the supreme uh, yogi. And so in his edition, uh, which includes his commentary, he's very much uh, emphasizing this point. And he's emphasizing that uh, to really ben- if we want to benefit from it, uh, from understanding what it's about, uh, then it's really good to hear from someone or to read from someone who is connected uh, to the tradition itself, not not from you know outsiders who are uh, sort of not really knowing, not really able to to enter into because Krishna says in the beginning of the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita he says Raja Vidya Raja Guhyam Pavitram Hiram Uttamam Guhya means confidential or secret says this is uh, the king of knowledge the king of secrets so to really enter into it um for that purpose, I would, um, I would recommend like that. And then uh, an initial entry into this other book I mentioned, the Bhagavata Purana. Um, here I'm going to be a little bit self-promoting, but uh, we published a selected readings from the Bhagavata Purana with Columbia University Press myself and Ravi Gupta, uh, which I think is, yeah, I think it's manageable. And uh, it goes along with a second, a second volume, which we published first, which is a collection of articles uh, by 12 scholars taking the Bhagavatam thematically. But if one wants to know more about kind of Hinduism on the ground, um, the lived life of, uh, of hin- Hindus. Um, there are a number of books, and I'm the particular title and author has just slipped my mind <laughs> of the one that's uh, kind of famous for this. But um, overviews of... Uh, of of Hinduism are many. Klaus Klostermeyer has done one. Uh, um, Gavin Flood has also. Um, another thing that may be of interest, although, yeah, 
uh, I'll just mention we. I'm uh, connected with the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, uh, which offers many, many courses in all different aspects of Hinduism. Um, there's a charge for each course, um, um, but they're all taught by uh, very qualified people. And one can pick and choose what one likes to study. That's the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, which you can find online. All right. I will, uh, I will do my best to link those sources that you just mentioned in the description of the video if anyone is interested. Sure. Okay, good. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, meet with me. I, I found this super helpful and beneficial. Um, I learned a lot. So thank you very much. I hope I didn't confuse you <laughs> more than what you started with. <laughs> no, it's, um, I mean, these things you oftentimes just get a, a, a super brief introduction in yeah. like a standard college course or even a high school course. Um, these things take a long time to, to sit with, to digest, to process. This was very enlightening for me. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.